0: I have a question for you, and this is an opportunity for all of us to be honest and bold, and it's okay if you fit into this category. That's totally cool. Here's my question. My question is this. I need you to raise your hand if in your family or in your friend group, you are the planner, okay? You are the one, on the count of three, we're just going to all do it together as a way of admitting our stuff, okay? If you are the planner in your friend group or your family, you are the one who, when it comes to vacation, it's not about fun, it's about being orderly, you know what I mean? It's, it's about getting all the stuff done every single moment of your day, whether it's in your day timer or your phone or whatever, raise your hand on the count of three if you are the planner in your community, one, two, three, that's awesome. I know nothing of that. I don't get those people. Um, I'm married to one, which is awesome, thankfully. Uh, but if you are the planner, then today is kind of for you because we're going to meet and we're going to re-meet Gideon. I began two weeks ago looking at Gideon part one. Well, we're going to meet Gideon. Uh, we're going to see the next chapter in Gideon's story where we're going to quickly find out something that you have found out. If you've ever planned something to a T, I imagine at some point in your life, the plan has unraveled. That At some point, the details that you put into place, the dream that you had begins to crumble in front of you and things take a different turn. And as we're about to see for Gideon, as he's up against one of the most powerful armies of his day, he has his plan A in mind, but it turns out that God's plan A was actually Gideon's plan C. And so I wonder if today some of you feel like you're living in a plan C life right now that the plan A that you had is not what you're living in right now and you're wondering what is going on and maybe, just maybe, God's plan A for your life is actually the plan C that you're living in. And maybe, just maybe, God wants to do something in and through your life that you would have never imagined possible. I remember at the last youth group that I was at, uh, one youth group night, this kid showed up. His name was Bryce Loftus, and he was a freshman. And he had an amazing night with us. And especially when a new student shows up to group, you want them to have a really positive, awesome experience, and you want them to return. And he had an amazing time. And then for some reason, for some reason, one of his friends, was like driving out of the parking lot and he, the freshman boy brain he had, thought it would be a great idea to like jump on the car to hold on to the window as the car kind of drove. And I'm screaming from the parking lot. I'm like, I don't want to go to jail, please. Like, please don't do this, stop. And and they continue to drive and he falls. He hits his head in the parking lot, starts having seizures. We have to call 911. Your kids would never do this. They have to call 911 and the ambulance comes And and I literally thought we would never see Bryce Loftus again. But then the next next week, he showed back up to youth group. And it was amazing because I was the freshman guys leader. And so he actually joined my small group. And so I thought, man, this kid literally almost had a near-death experience. It's just a few steps until he receives Christ. I mean, we're really close with him. And so, so I invited, you know, he was in our small group. And I started sharing with him about Jesus and and literally, like, each time I met with him, each week that we gathered that turns into months that turned into years, it felt like he got, like, farther and farther away from Jesus with my influence. And I'm like, that's not good. Like, that's not what I was hoping for as soon as he got his license and, and realized girls were awesome and drinking and all that stuff and partying. And that's just kind of what he ended up doing. And I remember praying, like, God, I'm the youth pastor. Please, like, save him. And, and I remember the day he graduated, I literally thought, like, he might be dead in a year. Like, I don't know what's going to happen with this kid. And, and so then four years after he graduated, I was at a youth pastor gathering with a bunch of other youth pastors. And as I was there, one of the youth pastors came up to me and he said, Eric, I got a random question for you. Do you know a guy named Bryce Loftus? And I was like, is he in prison? Like, what do you, what, what happened to Bryce Loftus, right? And he says this to me. He goes, Bryce is my intern in my youth group. He said, Bryce is like one of our leaders teaching kids about Jesus. And I'm like, teaching kids about Jesus? I thought he'd be on death row teaching kids about Jesus? Are you serious? And I remember going through that whole process, just not sure what God was going to do with Bryce's life. And it turned out, it turned out that what was my plan C was actually God's plan A all along. Well, as we rewind and look at Gideon's life, remember that Gideon, we first met him. He was in a wine press, thre- he was in a wine press, threshing wheat, he was terrified, he was scared because the ginormous Midianite army was against him. And he thought there was no hope for his life. And God came to him and God said, you are a mighty warrior. And we learned, the first thing we learned from Gideon's life is that God calls you and I as he sees us. He doesn't call us based on our past, based on our insecurities. He calls us based on the purposes that he has put in our lives. And so when God looks at you, he calls you daughter or son. He calls you mighty warrior, chosen, And so Gideon has a little bit of courage, and then God says, I'm going to defeat the Midianite army through you. But what it's going to require is that you walk in faith, not in fear. And God has this line where he says, I want you to go in the strength that you have, remembering that I am always with you. And we talked about how some of you, that the reason you haven't taken that step of faith yet is because you've forgotten that God is with you. That you think you're taking that next step alone, but God promises to always be with you. And then the third thing we learned is that God is trustworthy. That when Gideon said, okay, God, to, to show me that you're actually in this, I'm going to lay out this blanket, and I want you to make the whole blanket wet and everything else dry, and God did it. And then it's okay, God, the next night, I want you to make this blanket dry and everything else around it wet. And it was a, a way of God saying, you can rely on me, but what we have is something even greater than what Gideon had. That what we have is Jesus Christ. That God has made it crystal clear to you and I that we can trust him. That we can bank our life on him. That he has proved to us his great love for us. And that Christ died and rose from the grave on our behalf. But today what we are going to look at is the moments right before Gideon battles against the superpower of his day. And the odds are absolutely against them. In fact, before we even begin, you need to know there's 32,000 soldiers in the Israelite army. And there's 135,000 soldiers in the Midianite army. And so the Israelites are only a quarter of their competitors And yet God still has a few things that he wants to teach Gideon. So find me in Judges chapter 7, where we pick up the story of Gideon. Judges chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, where the first thing we're going to learn together is this. Weakness is an advantage. Weakness is an advantage. Early in the morning, Jerub Baal, which is the name they give to Gideon, which literally means like, Baal butt kicker. I mean, that's what it means. Like, that, that's who Gideon was. I mean, he, he he was tearing down these idols and so they gave him this name, that this is Gideon and all his men, they camped at Spring Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. The Lord said to Gideon, you have two men. Many men. Gideon's going, God, are you you seeing the same thing I'm seeing? I've got 32,000. They have 135,000, and you're saying that I have too many men? God continues, I cannot deliver Midian into your hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. What we learn right here is God is, he works very hard to keep our pride from getting the best of us. That God works very hard knowing that oftentimes the strengths that we feel, which he's about to feel a lot of weakness, the strengths that we feel become pathways for pride rather than pathways for praise. That those moments of confidence that you have, that they oftentimes are layered with this sense of, I got this on my own. I don't need anybody else. But you see, God is trying to build dependence God is trying to build a relationship with us. And so he says to Gideon, you have too many men. Then in verse three, now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. And so Gideon is about to be weakened. Gideon's army is about to be reduced. And maybe even as we begin this conversation today, that whether you're watching online or listening to a podcast or you're here in this room, you feel weak. You feel like your army has been reduced. You feel like you're at the end of your rope. And God says to Gideon, 22,000 of them must leave. And Gideon might have thought in this moment, okay, okay, it was the 22,000 that weren't very brave, the 22,000 that were afraid. So the 10,000 that remain, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And so I imagine it's a little bit of a shot to the ego. He's a little nervous, but Gideon lets the 22,000 go. And then God tests him again. Verse four, but the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. Now what we're about to read together, this test that God uh, devised, it's, it's, it's like scholars. I mean, theologians with multiple PhD degrees, they're literally like, we don't know what God was doing. Like, we just don't understand, okay? So as you read this, I, theres I, don't, I haven't found any, like, really deep spiritual theological thing going on other than it's just sort of funny, which is awesome because the Bible is funny. Verse, uh, verse five, so Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water up with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. So just just to picture this. So 300 of them are over there. The rest of them, 9,700, are sitting here. They go down to the water, and they're thirsty, and they literally just dive into the water, okay? And so that doesn't seem like a very distinguished way to drink water, but they just literally dive in. It doesn't matter if logs are coming down or rocks or, like, if there's a dead fish. Who knows? Like, they're they're just drinking up this water, okay? And then over here, over here is this group of people that laps up water, but their tongues are, like, lapping it up like a dog. Like, kind of, it feels like they're making a big scene, which I feel like Gideon must have been standing back at this point and been, like, both these people are crazy. Like, this is just crazy town right here. Like, you got the divers over here. That's not how you drink. You got the ones who are like, look, Gideon, I'm drinking like a dog, right? And you're like, I don't know. That doesn't inspire confidence. And I don't know what, but Gideon is literally looking at this going, is there anyone else? Like, is there anyone else that could join me? And I bet in that moment he's going, okay, well, maybe like these freaks, God will like, you know, allow me to choose them. And then God says, it's actually these 300. It's these 300 who I want you to go up against 135,000. See, Gideon is feeling very weak. And he's feeling like this weakness is actually a disadvantage. But the truth is, weakness is actually one of the greatest advantages that you and I have. And here's why. Later in the New Testament, Paul picks up on this idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, He's talking with Jesus and he has his own weakness. In fact, he has something that he goes, man, if I could just get rid of this insecurity, if I could just get rid of this worry, if I could just get rid of this thing, if I was positioned better, making more money, if that relationship was fixed, man, I could do what you've called me to do, God. But Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. What Paul is saying here is there is a secret to living a kind of life where you are open about your weaknesses, about the pain, about the things that you're uncertain about, about the parts of your life that you wish nobody else knew about there's a kind of embracing the reality that your health situation is not what you want it to be, that your marriage is not what you wanted it to be, that the way your kids are turned out is not the way you want it to be, that that, that college that rejected you is deeply wounding you. There is a kind of advantage that comes with that because when you're in that place, God, through weakness, builds dependence on him. You see, if your life... If you could lean in one direction, if you could lean into your own strength, or if you could choose to lean into the strength of God, it's an easy decision. Because what God's trying to teach us is that dependence on him is actually the best thing for us. And this you need to know about God. Because he loves you and cares about you, God desires and enjoys revealing his power and love to his people, that God loves to show you his power and his love over you. But sometimes to do that, God will either allow or he will cause you to have a deficit of power and love because God wants a people who are sold out, that recognize the truth that he and he alone is where our ultimate strength actually comes from. I wrestled all week with telling you guys this story because it's just kind of embarrassing. And, but I felt like as I was talking about weakness, I, I had to. About a year and a half ago, I got an email from a camp in the area. And the camp said, Eric, we'd like you to come and speak for our camp. And i gonna be honest with you, my very first thought was awesome. Now I can say I, I speak at this other camp. Now I can feel better about myself. I can feel like I have it together and I'm, and I'm wanted and desired and so they had me fill out this questionnaire and submit some video teachings and actually meet with somebody and, and I did all of that stuff and, and I was just waiting for when I was gonna get to go speak at this camp and then I got an email back that said, I'm sorry, Eric, but we haven't approved you to speak here. And it was on a Wednesday night, which I feel like these always come on Wednesday nights, right before youth group, right before I'm about to speak and I'm like, what am I even doing here? And that night, what I was speaking about to our high school students was spiritual gifts and how God invites us to desire and want spiritual gifts, but always within the context of remembering their purpose. You see, the purpose of spiritual gifts are not for our own edification. They're not so that we feel higher and mightier, but so that they would be used for the common good. This is why God has gifted every believer with spiritual gifts, so that they could be a part of the body and bless the body and support the body. And I realized in this moment that I wasn't desiring to speak at this camp so that I could be a part of what God wanted to do. The very selfish, broken part of me wanted to be a part of this camp so I could feel better about me. About a year later, I got an email from this camp, and they said, Eric. We want you to speak at our camp. And I was like, I don't know if I can go through this again. You know what I mean? Like, like you've seen that, like that, that heart. I mean, you've seen Titanic once. You don't need to see it again. You know what I mean? Like, you, you've seen those heartbreaking moments, and you're just like, I can't relive that experience. And, and I remember just being like, oh, I don't know. But you see, a year later, I was in a totally different place. I remember praying and saying, okay, God, if you want this for me, if, if this is what you have, if you've called me to this, if you're going to use me, then okay. So I wrote up the stuff, sent the videos, did literally the exact same thing. And like four months, six months went by. Didn't hear anything from them. I was like, this is heartbreak all over again. And then they shot me an email and they said, we want you to speak in this camp. And I was like, what? This is incredible. But you see, God had to weaken me. God had to take me to a place where my dependence on him was greater than my dependence on myself. Peter, when he was writing to the church in 1 Peter, he was writing to a group of people who were terrified. They were people in the wine press because at this point, at this time in history, Nero was on a rampage, the Roman emperor of the day, to kill and squash out all Christians. In fact, when he would find Christians, he would light them on fire and tie them to these poles to illuminate the Olympic games that they were playing. So Christians were under intense persecution. In fact, Christians felt very weak at this time. But what Peter writes to this church, he writes to us and he says, you guys, what you need to understand about weakness is that right around the corner is something profound that you need. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, and all of this you greatly rejoice in all the suffering, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief. In all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, right around the corner to this weakness that you're experiencing, is that if you'll hang in there and if you'll trust God, right around that corner is a kind of genuine faith that you couldn't get any other way. A kind of genuine faith, and in fact, as Hudson Taylor says, he describes it this way, that God wants you to have something far better than riches and gold, and that is helpless dependence on him, because God knows that is what you need. I remember when I was applying for college, I was a senior in high school, maybe there's some of you that are in that season, and I was applying for college, and I really desired to go to this university, and I got accepted. I remember before the uh, deposit was due, my parents sat me down and said, Eric, we can't afford to send you to that school. And I remember my heart was broken. I mean, I had my plan A in mind, go to this university, and and all of a sudden, it just felt like that dream was gone. And, and then my youth pastor at the time, who I was really, really close with, he said, Eric, why don't you come and intern with me at the church, and, and you'll work with me for two years, and, and we'll, it'll be an amazing experience. And I said, okay, well, if I have to let go of my plan A, then this plan B is going to be a good one. And so Three months into that internship, my youth pastor decided to become a police officer. And so he literally, within three months of the internship, ditched us and, and went. And it was, it was a God thing. I mean, God was totally using him and in it. But in that moment, I felt ditched. I felt like, God, what's going on? And for the next year and nine months of that internship was struggling and wrestling through. What does it mean to be in ministry? And there was so much pain and hurt and challenge in that time. But you know what was crazy? is that through it all, through it all, it became clear to me that God was calling me into ministry. You see, what I felt like was my plan C turned out to actually be God's plan A in my life. Well, not only does Gideon learn... That weakness is actually an advantage. But jump down to verse 9. Jump down to verse 9 and check out what happens. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up and go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid, which we know Gideon has been in the past and we are too at times, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be Encouraged. This is really important. So God says, look, look. I am going to encourage you. It's the night before the big game, the night before the final attack, the night before I hand them over into your hands. I know 300 against 135,000 seems impossible, but Gideon, don't you worry, I'm gonna encourage you. I'm gonna really encourage you. And so Gideon takes his little buddy and they decide to go down. Verse 12, check out what happens. The Midianites, the Amalekites and all the other Eastern peoples had settled in the valley and they were thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as the man was telling a friend his dream. This man says, I had a dream. He was saying, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. And Gideon is listening to all of this. And how does God compare Gideon? You know what God compares Gideon to? A giant biscuit. I mean, that's it. He says, Gideon, take courage. Do not have fear. Be a mighty warrior. You are on the biscuit team. I mean, you've got everything you need. Can you imagine how Gideon is feeling at this point? You see, God's trying to teach Gideon another lesson, and it's the same lesson he's trying to teach us, that strength comes through obedience. That the strength you need comes through obedience. And here's what's wild. I was thinking about this this morning as I was even looking at this again. That when God puts a vision on your heart, when the vision belongs to God, you have all the resources you need. That when the vision actually belongs to God, like the thing you're doing is what God has called you to do, it doesn't matter how under-resourced you feel at that moment. If it is a God-sized vision, if it is a God-empowered vision, if it is a vision from God, he will supply you with everything that you need. That means the marriage. That means the unemployment situation. That means the rejection. That means the thing that you're facing. If you will recognize that weakness is actually an advantage because it makes room for God. And that it is actually obedience to him that produces the strength that we need. Then you will have everything that you need to face whatever it is that God has you facing. Even when you feel like your army's been reduced. Even when you feel like your health has been so compromised that he must have forgotten about you. Even when you feel like it's been a decade since me and my wife or my husband have even had a meaningful conversation. That even when you're struggling with a mental health diagnosis and you feel alone and isolated, God will give you the strength that you need. And the ways he chooses to work is up to him. I mean, that's his terrain. That's what he gets to determine. Psalm 119, verse 105, David reflects on something interesting about God. He says, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. You see, God will oftentimes illuminate just enough for you to take the next step. And in fact, some of us fall into the trap of thinking that a bigger light that a bigger light is what we need, but the truth is a bigger light won't produce the strength you need, obedience will. That you don't need to just wait back and say, okay, God, I'm waiting until you do the really big thing and make it crystal clear, line up everything. That's not what you need to do. Obedience on the daily is what God is calling you to do. I have this background on my phone um, and I look at it all the time. It says, be strong and courageous. God goes with you. It's from Deuteronomy 31 6. And as I face challenging conversations or difficult situations, or I have this desire, even before I get up and preach, I always have this thought like, I just want to run away. Like, I just want to run away because this is scary and terrifying. And I look at my phone and I remember God's word that He's called me to have a strength and a courage that doesn't come from my own, but a strength and courage that comes from Him, knowing that God always goes with me. Well, here's the thing that's interesting about. God is he is very patient with Gideon all through the story and, and Gideon and his army end up invading the Midianites and they defeat them and it's this incredible story. You need to read the rest of it in Judges seven and eight. It's absolutely incredible. And and Gideon, he's at the finish line as a mighty warrior. And he even gives this final victory speech in in Judges, chapter 8, verse 22. The Israelites prompt him. They say, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But God told them, I will not rule over you. Gideon said, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. I mean, he has this incredible moment where he says, it's not about me. It's all about God. And yet right after that, right after that moment, Gideon becomes a fourth quarter fumble. Gideon makes a mistake that ends up tarnishing his family. I don't know if you you experience this with your kids, if you have little kids, but Halloween is one of these amazing experiences where we get the kids all dressed up, and I'm going to show you a picture of the four kids. They were uh, all dressed up this Halloween. We had Charlie as uh, Captain America. We had the two ballerinas, and then we had little Simba right there, and so um, there's Levi's little Simba. We just had an amazing time, walked the neighborhood, got lots of candy, had so much fun. I'll show you the next photo. That should have clued us in that it wasn't going to be the best night ending, just things were already starting to go bad for Levi, and... And we were having an amazing time. It was literally right before bedtime. I mean, the story was incredible. Just like Gideon's story. I mean, it's just absolutely phenomenal. And then literally within seconds... Lila walks up to Brinley and scratches her eye, right? And they're so like drugged up on candy that it's just, it's bad. So it's just the, the energy, the stuff is going off. And, and so Lila scratches Brinley. Brinley like erupts in tears. Then Lila walks over. She bumps her head on this uh, desk that we have and she erupts in tears. And literally, literally within seconds, we go from being like the happiest family. Everything was great. We were having an amazing time to this just undies and tears you know what I mean I mean that was just where we were at as a family And you see, that's Gideon. I mean, he's had this amazing story with God, and then all of a sudden, in a split second, check out what he says right after his victory speech about the Lord leading everything. He says, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. Jump down to verse 27. Gideon made the gold from those earrings into an ephod, which is placed in Orpha, his town, All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. You see, God, God did not call Gideon to be a king. He did not call Gideon to be the spiritual leader of Israel. He called him to be a mighty warrior. And in Exodus chapter 28, God calls Aaron, Moses' brother Aaron, to be the spiritual leader of Israel. And he says one of the marks of a spiritual leader is they will wear this ephod. But you see, Gideon, Gideon falls into a trap that all of us fall into at one time or another. He gets sidetracked. And when you get sidetracked by what you think you deserve, you miss out on what you were destined for. You see, Gideon felt like he deserved to be the spiritual leader of Israel, and he missed out on what God's destiny was for him. See, some of you, you feel like you deserve a happier marriage, and so you cheat. Some of you feel like you you deserve to be wealthy, and so you cut some corners. You deserve to be in that relationship that you wanna be in, and so you lower your standards. That all of us fall into this trap at one time or another where we feel like we deserve something, and so we will let go of the destiny that God has put on our life. And I wanted to just for a second get in front of any of you, if there's any of you in this room, who you are on the verge of a fourth quarter fumble. You are on a verge of throwing away the marriage, throwing away the relationship, risking your reputation, doing anything illegal, doing anything that would harm yourself. I want to get in front of you and say, don't have a fourth quarter fumble. Don't miss it, thinking that you deserve this, that you're not good enough to live, whatever it may be. I want to get in front of you and say, you have a destiny that God does have a plan for your life and it doesn't result in you, it doesn't look like you compromising. But then I was wondering, maybe there's some of you here, maybe there's some of you here who, who like Gideon, you want to own something, you, you want to give into that, you need to remember that oftentimes that thing you want to own will end up owning you. That's what sin does every time. But maybe you're in this room And you're going, Eric, too late. The message is too late. My fourth quarter fumble happened a long time ago. Well, friends, let me remind you of this truth that when Jesus is in charge of your life, there's always another quarter. That when Jesus is your head coach, there is always another quarter that God is not done with your life yet. He has dreams and passions. He has things that he wants to do in and through you. And so if you have fumbled, you need to believe and know that God is the God of next quarters. God is the God of overtime, that God will continue to work in your life if you believe that your weakness is actually an advantage and that your true strength comes from obedience. I wanna read you this last verse as we wrap up. In 2 Corinthians chapter seven, verse 10, Paul says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. And so right now you might be experiencing a kind of sorrow and you get to determine, will it be godly sorrow or will it be worldly sorrow? You see, the difference between godly sorrow And worldly sorrow is simple. Godly sorrow results in repenting from my sin, turning away. But worldly sorrow results in returning to my sin. So if you're on the line, ready to make a fourth quarter fumble, repent, run away, don't return to. And if you've made that fourth quarter fumble, choose to believe and know that as you repent and walk away and are obedient to God, that he will do the immeasurable in your life because oftentimes, oftentimes your plan C is God's plan A. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. I pray, Lord, that you would make it clear to us what it is that that we find ourselves, the situation we find ourselves in, that what is that plan C that we've fallen into that we've become bitter or resentful for God, I pray that as we patiently wait for you, that you would show up in our lives and remind us that you are the God that takes our plan C's and makes them your plan A. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.